नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम ंड जय श्री कृष्ण चैतन्य प्रभु नित्यानंद श्री अद्वैत गधाधार श्रीवासादि गौरभक्तवृंद आई ऑफर माय रिस्पेक्टफुल ओबेसेंसेस अनटू श्री चैतन्य महाप्रभु लॉर्ड नित्यानंद श्री अद्वैत गधाधार पंडित श्रीवास ठाकुर एंड ऑल द डिवोटीज ऑफ लॉर्ड चैतन्य हरे कृष्णा हरे कृष्णा 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 हरे 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 राम हरे राम 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 हरे हरे I pray that Sri Radha Kalachanji, Sri La Prabhupad, Sri La Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, September 7, 2021. I am Jay Sri Radha Devi Dasi, and we are reading from Shrimad Bhagavatam Canto One, Creation, Chapter Nine, The Passing Away of Bhishma Dev in the Presence of Lord Krishna, Text 31. विशुद्यान one who has minimized the inauspicious qualities of material existence that him ikshaya by looking on eva simply ashu immediately gata having gone away yudha from the arrows shrama fatigue nivrita being stopped sarva all indriya senses vritti activities vibhrama being widely engaged tushtava he prayed janyam the material tabernacle vishrajan while quitting janardanam to the controller of the living beings translation and purport by his divine grace ac bhaktivedanta swami srila prabhupad by pure meditation looking at lord shri krishna he at once was freed from all material inauspiciousness and was relieved of all bodily pains caused by the arrow wounds thus all the external activities of his senses at once stopped 
And he prayed transcendentally to the controller of all living beings while quitting his material body. Report. The material body is a gift of the material energy, technically called illusion. Identification with the material body is due to forgetfulness of our eternal relationship with the Lord. For a pure devotee of the Lord, like Bhishmadev, this illusion was at once removed as soon as the Lord arrived. Lord Krishna is like the sun, and the illusory external material energy is like darkness. In the presence of the sun, there is no possibility that darkness can stand. Therefore, just on the arrival of Lord Krishna, all material contamination was completely removed, and Bhishmadev was thus able to be transcendentally situated by stopping the activities of the impure senses in collaboration with matter. The soul is originally pure, and so also the senses. By material contamination, the senses assume the role of imperfection and impurity. By revival of contact with the supreme pure, Lord Krishna, the senses again become freed from material contaminations. Vishmadev attained all these transcendental conditions prior to his leaving the material body because of the Lord's presence. Lord is the controller and benefactor of all living beings. That is the verdict of all Vedas. He is the supreme eternity and living entity amongst all the eternal living beings. And he alone provides all the necessities for all kinds of living beings. Thus, he provided all facilities to fulfill the transcendental desires of his great devotee, Bhishmadev, who prayed as follows. So we're continuing uh, to read about the last moments of Bhishmadev's life. You know, after the war of Kurukshetra, he was wounded severely, fatally, you could say, by arrows. And he is now... there. We've been table-setting all this time so we can get ready for the prayers in which he's about to speak in the next few verses. But they describe, you know, if we've been reading along with um, the chapter, we've described all of the benefits of being in Krishna's presence, of thinking about Krishna, of surrendering to him. And today's verse, it's almost like a summary of Krishna consciousness, right? With we talk about being freed from all material inauspiciousness, relieved of bodily pains, stopping our external activities of, and senses, and surrendering to Krishna. And this is really the key point of Krishna consciousness. What I find is interesting is the first sentence in the purport, Prabhupada says, the material body is a gift. And we tend to think of the material body as a curse, right? We Think of, oh, look at all the miseries that the material body brings us, and we identify with it, therefore we feel miserable. Um, And we look at all the different ways that the material body brings us misery. Here Prabhupada says the material body is a gift. It's a gift from the illusory energy, from material energy. But it's still a gift. And a gift, nonetheless, should be honored and respected. If somebody gives you a gift, and it's a very treasurable gift, very valuable. Material body is very valuable. It's a very valuable gift. So someone gives you, let's say, like this piece of jewelry, maybe diamonds. You know, diamonds um, encased in platinum 
casing, right? Setting. Um, so it's a beautiful necklace made of diamonds and platinum. If somebody gave you such a valuable gift, you wouldn't just toss it aside and use it willy-nilly and, and you know, not take care of it. Something like that, it's very expensive. You'd probably lock it up in a uh, safe if you're not wearing it so it doesn't get stolen. When you wear it, you make sure to take care of it, that the clasp is tight, that it doesn't fall off. So in that same way, we have to think of the material body and everything associated as a gift. We don't become that jewelry. We don't become that diamond necklace. And we're not also similarly the body, but we can still honor and respect the body as a gift. And the material body as a gift comes with so many included gifts. We have so many natural skills and talents and abilities, all of which we can use in service of Krishna. If we took this jewelry necklace that somebody gave us, and instead of putting it on ourselves, we donated it to the deities and put dressed Brother Kalachanji in it, that diamond becomes that much more beautiful and powerful. And similarly, if the material body is a gift, we use it in service of Krishna, then that body becomes that much more valuable and, and treasurable. In the Bhagavad Gita, uh, 3.12, Krishna says, In charge of the various necessities of life, the demigods, being satisfied by the performance of yagna, or sacrifice, will supply all necessities to you. But one who enjoys such gifts without offering them to the demigods is, in return is certainly a thief. So if we enjoy the gift of this material body without returning it, without offering it in return, we are no better than a thief. And how do we offer the material body, the material senses, the best way that we can as a sacrifice? Well, we know that any sacrifices that are made to the demigods are eventually or ultimately made to Krishna. So we are talking about bypassing the sacrifices to the demigods and just offering it to Krishna. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're taking care of this material body. So we want to make sure that we are feeding it properly, that we are sleeping. You know, in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says we don't want to sleep too much or too little, eat too much or too little. We want to make sure that we eat foods that are fresh and nourishing the body, not foods that are in the mode of ignorance that are going to cause us to feel heavy and um, tired and just want to sleep. And all of this we want to take care of because, as it says in the verse, he prayed transcendentally to the controller of all living beings. So we want to surrender. We want to have this mood of surrender, especially at the time of death. And to have this mood of surrender at the time of death, we have to practice this mood of surrender our whole life. Because whatever we practice and we instill into our body, that's what's going to come up at that most crucial, challenging moment as um, Giraj Maharaj calls it, life's final exam is death. In Bhagavad Gita 8.5, Krishna says, whoever at the end of their life quits their body remembering me alone at once attains my nature. Of this there is no doubt. So Krishna's reassuring us here that if we think about him at the time of death, then we will come to him. There's no doubt about that. 
So we want to live our lives in such a way that we think about Krishna at the moment of death. And that takes constant practice. You know, it's it's not just like, oh, well, I'll just do it, because it doesn't happen. How many of you guys have been in an accident or in a near-death type thing, almost hit, right? At that moment, what were your thoughts? I know mine is like, oh, F word or OS word, you know. It's not, oh, Krishna. Um, when I'm about, you know, like you're somebody in front of you breaks and you have to slam on the brakes, my first thought isn't, oh, Krishna. It's something, you know, expletive. So I still need a lot of practice because in that moment when I'm feeling helpless and out of control, it's a matter of surrendering. And the more I practice that, the more it just becomes a part of me that I don't need to think about. A lot of times when I'm in that moment, you know, that F-bomb you know, flies out of my mouth at that moment, then I'm like, oh no, I'm supposed to think about Krishna. But that that second has already passed. And yes, I've redirected my mind to say, okay, oh, Krishna instead. But if that moment was that um, instantaneous, where it's just like you hit that other car in front of you and who knows what happens, you don't get a second chance in that moment. So we want to make sure that whatever we do, we are working towards that, working towards always thinking about Krishna. Bhagavad Gita 8, 6, Krishna again says, whatever state one remembers when they quit their body, O son of Kunti, that state they will attain without fail. So he's reassuring us over and over again. How many times in the Bhagavad Gita, I was thinking about counting this, but there's so many where he says, if you do this, surely you will come to me. And over and over again, it's, if you think of me, surely you will come to me. And he's saying here, at the time of death, when you quit your body, surely, surely you'll come to me. So then we can think, well, you know, if I'm doing all of this, like I've been chanting for 26, 27 years, and I still have, you know, it's still not a part of me to think about Krishna in those moments of pain, then, then it's like, okay, well, should I even bother, you know, because I haven't achieved that level of perfection. Krishna says that, no worries that whatever you lack, I will make up for. So it's just he's looking at our endeavor throughout our entire life. And if we're making that effort, then at that moment, he will cover us for what we lack. But at the same time, we shouldn't be like, oh, I don't have to do anything because Krishna will cover me for what I lack. We still have to do our duty, and we still have to work on remembering Krishna at every moment and surrendering to Krishna at every moment. In 729 Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Intelligent persons who are endeavoring for liberation from old age and death take refuge in me in devotional service. They're actually Brahman because they entirely know everything about transcendental activities. And in 730, he goes on to say, Those in full consciousness of me who know me, the Supreme Lord, to be the governing principle of the material manifestation of the demigods, and of all methods of sacrifice, can understand and know me, the supreme personality of Godhead, even at the time of death. So, again, he's reassuring us that we can know him, that we can think of him. But he's also saying that, make me the goal of your life. I am the goal of your life. He actually says that in 918. He says, I am the goal. 
And then he says, I'm the sustainer, the master, the witness, the abode, the refuge, and the most dear friend. But he says, I am the goal. So what does that mean? You know, when we take a goal-setting class, we learn so many different ways about how to reach our goals. And one of the things that I really focus on when I coach people to reach their goals is to really embody why do you want to reach this goal. So, you know, we can read so many things, but when we understand why do we want Krishna to be our goal, why do we want to achieve this level of liberation of thinking about Krishna at the time of death, and it's to, you know, liberation of old age and death, well, each of us will have our own reasons. You know, what's my reason, what drives me to chant my rounds every day, may not be the same thing that drives you to chant your rounds every day. I'm going to pick on you, Jason. What drives you to chant your rounds every day? To please your spiritual master. Okay. Do you guys chant regularly? Why do you chant? So you chant because you want to go back to him. So when you eat... When we are chanting, when we're making Krishna our goal, we have to keep these goals in mind. You know, initially, pleasing my spiritual master was the only reason I chanted. And through that, I still chant to please my spiritual master, but now I also chant to please Krishna and to reconnect my relationship to Krishna. So we want to focus on these things. You know, I would say... If we don't focus on it, it becomes easy to say, oh, well, I'm not going to do it today. It's similar to any other goal that we have in life, that we want to make sure that we understand why we're doing it and that message is forefront. One of the um, things that I've learned about goal setting is have that message. Why do you want that? You know, What do you want out of life? Put that somewhere that you can see it every day. Create a sentence like your vision statement or your mission statement. And put that somewhere that you're going to see it every day. That way you remember to take the actions that are going to lead you to that goal. So if you put, you know, I want to reconnect. No, I am, because we don't write, when we write goal-setting goals, we don't say want. We say them as if they're already done. So I am Krishna's servant and loving devotee, right? So I can say, I have a loving and unique relationship with Krishna. And when I see that, it reminds me that when I chant, that's what I'm chanting for. When I um, read, you know, when I instead of watching TV, if I read the Srimad Bhagavatam, I'm choosing in that moment to rekindle my relationship with Krishna. When I offer prasadam, I'm choosing in that moment to rekindle my relationship so all these things, if I see the goal all the time, then I can really um, make sure I stay focused on that goal. Otherwise, you know, another way I can say this is, you know, a lot of times I'm working on, like, getting healthier, getting fitter. And if I don't keep that goal of why I want to be fit, right, so I want to have energy and vitality that I can, you know, get up and go and do whatever I want to do, um, and not feel hindered by bodily pains or, you know, lack of energy. But in that moment, sometimes that chocolate cake can be very tempting. 
But I know, like, if I eat it, then that sugar will make me feel tired later on. All that flour will kind of drag me down. Um, I'm actually a little bit allergic to gluten, so then I'll have, like, you know, that heaviness, the bloating, all of that stuff, which then makes it harder to get out of bed and to do my services in the morning or throughout the day. Um, So we want to make sure that that goal is fresh in our mind. We also want to make sure that it's not a mechanical goal. Sometimes we have a goal, and we know that these are the steps to get to that goal. So our goal is to reconnect with Krishna, to please our spiritual master, and the steps to that are, you know, honoring prashadam, um, hearing about Krishna, chanting our japa, kirtan. But sometimes our chanting and our honoring prashadam can become very mechanical. We're thinking, oh, we're just doing the steps that we need to do to get the goal. So I'm just chanting my 16 rounds every day, um, focusing on the number, making sure they get done, rather than focusing on that action as the goal itself. So I'll go back to the health um, example. So if I'm making a goal to be healthier, the steps to get there is to make sure I exercise every day, to make sure I eat healthy, that I get enough sleep, um, that I you know, manage my stress levels, things like that, right? So in exercise, you have to push yourself a little bit every day. Now, I've gone to where, you know, I'm exercising and I just don't feel like it, so I just kind of go through the motions. But you know, you you kind of like went through a workout, but you didn't push yourself hard enough, so you, you didn't really build any muscles, right? Like, if I know I can lift 10 pounds, I can, you know, let's just curl 10 pounds, but I only do 5 pounds because I'm a little tired, that's not really pushing my muscles to do anything more. Or if I do 10 pounds, but I only do like 10 sets or 10 reps instead of 15, you know, you're supposed to do until you feel that burn in your muscle, then it's still not, I mean, I'm moving, so it's better than nothing, but it's not really getting me closer to the goal. And if I continue doing that for a month, a few months, and I think, I haven't put on any muscle, I haven't lost any weight, um, this doesn't work. But it's more that I was doing it mechanically, not in the mood of like really pushing ourselves. So in that same way, we can get into a routine of chanting our japa and making it more mechanical and really focusing on like, oh, I'm getting the numbers done, I'm chanting. You can even chant properly and still be mechanical. So, you know, it's always a matter of pushing ourselves. I This past weekend, I attended the Japa retreat in Houston, virtually. And one of the big realizations or one of the big keys that I took away from that weekend was, from this past weekend, was that we have to push ourselves out of our comfort zone to achieve a little bit more than what we have right now. And one of the reasons why that really hit me is that I think it was the third time last week in, like, five days I heard that message. And whenever that happens, I think, okay, I need to listen to this. There's a reason why this is repeating for me. So I was thinking about, in my japa, how can I get out of my comfort zone? How can I push myself a little bit more um, that sometimes, you know, makes you feel a little scared to do? 
Uh, and that's really what we're talking about. When you're, if you're not feeling a little scared, a little apprehensive, a little shy about doing something, then you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. You're completely in your comfort zone. And it's okay. Some days we want to stay in our comfort zone. It's nice to have our nice meditative japa. It's still nice chanting japa. But we want to make sure that we're always pushing forward because the um, enemy of progress is contentment or complacency. So if we feel complacent or content in what we're doing, that means we're not really progressing forward. We're stagnant. The other enemy of progression is perfection. We also think, I'm not doing it perfectly. I'm not chanting my 16 rounds with full attention, avoiding the 10 offenses. Um, therefore, I shouldn't chant at all. I'm not going to chant at all. Sometimes we have this thought, like, I can't do it perfectly, so why bother? But we want to make sure that we're progressing. So, you know, similarly, as a child, this is really interesting. I have a couple of stories about babies. But, you know, when I'm watching my um, nephew, who's just getting to walking, you know, he's crawling first, and he's lifting himself up, and now he needs to hold your hand to walk. And soon he'll kind of walk. And he does take a few steps by himself without holding hands, and then he just falls down, right? Now, if he thought... Or if we think, oh, you're not running already, you're not walking perfectly, don't even bother. Just keep crawling your whole life. You know, that's not how we treat babies. And the baby himself doesn't think that. He doesn't think, my nephew's not thinking, oh, I fell down, I'm not going to try again. Or if I try, I'm going to fall, so then I'm not going to do it. I mean, they're kind of fearless. Babies are a little bit fearless. They just get up and try it again and again until they get really hurt bad. But, you know, he he fell on his butt, and he kind of, like, laughed. And then, you know, I picked it, I gave him my hand. He held, you know, he lifted himself up, and then he started walking. And then he wanted to try again by himself. So you can see this effort when you see it in a baby. But then we think we need to be that same way of gentle and compassionate with ourselves. You know, we may try something and fail or not do it perfectly. We may pick up our beads and try to chant and when we start chanting, our mind goes all over the place. And then we think, oh, my God, I'm such a horrible person. I should be doing this and that. And really, that's not the way we want to talk to ourselves. We want to say, okay, the mind wandered. Let's try again. Let's bring the mind back to the Maha Mantra, and let's try again. And that way, we start to redirect ourselves, and it becomes more of a habit. So in that moment when I was talking about that near-miss accident, you know, and the F-bomb came out of my mouth. Um, if I was like, oh, my God, I'm such a horrible person, you know, instead of thinking of Krishna, I thought of this F-bomb word, then it just kind of spirals and it makes it harder to progress. But instead I thought, okay, I thought of this, but instead I want to think of Krishna. So start thinking about Krishna. You know, redirect the mind back to what we want it to be. And that's the way it is. And... In Bhagavad Gita 6.24, Krishna says, One should engage oneself in the practice of yoga with determination and faith and not be deviated from the path. One should abandon, without exception, all material desires born of mental speculation and thus control all the senses on all sides of the mind. 
So determination and faith is what we want. We want to have faith that we will reach Krishna, we will get this goal of reconnecting to Krishna, of pleasing our spiritual master. And we want to have determination in doing so. Another story that I can tell you about babies. So I have a niece. So my nephew is 13 months, and my niece is seven and a half months. And um, I was Skyping. I was Skyping with my brother and, you know, watching my niece as she was exploring. And there was something, like, on the wall, like, you know, I guess the outlet. And she kept going for it. And so what my brother would do is he, he would just kind of push her, to, you know, toss her to the side gently. And she would just laugh and, you know, du- kind of, like, dust herself off and start crawling for that thing again. And no matter how many times he pushed her back, picked her up and pulled her all the way back, she just laughed it off and and was so single-mindedly focused on that outlet on the wall that that's, that's what she wanted to play with, that nothing could deter her from that. And I thought, you know, again, babies are pure, unadulterated. They haven't had this opportunity yet to have all their anarthas and doubts and self-limiting beliefs come to play they just are focused on what they can see. And what she saw was the outlet. And no matter what my brother did, she kept focus on that goal. And every challenge that hit her, every time her my brother pushed her back or, you know, tossed her to the side, she just laughed it off. Can you imagine if we had a big challenge that was, like, really hard in our lives and we just laughed it off and kept focus on our goal? I was thinking... You know, that is powerful message that we can learn from babies, right? Um, so it's, it's this determination and faith. But Krishna also says in 625, gradually, step by step, one should become situated in trance by means of intelligence sustained by full conviction. And thus the mind should be fixed on the self alone and should think of nothing else. So he's not saying do this all at once, like wake up tomorrow and have full faith and determination and not be deviated from the path. He says gradually, step by step. So if we combine these two verses that with determination and faith, gradually, step by step, we can come to Krishna. And another way I can present the gradually, step by step is how many of you guys have ever made New Year's resolutions? Yeah? New Year's resolutions? Yeah? You've made them? You know, like, we all make this resolution that, like, somehow or another, January 1st, we're going to become perfect, right? We're going to, like, exercise as much as we need to. We're going to eat healthy and sleep. And, like, all of a sudden, I don't know why January 1st is this magic date, but that's what we think. And how long does that last? January 2nd, 3rd, maybe, if we're a little bit more determined. But usually, you know, they say, at the gym... January 1st through 7th, it's so crowded. By the 15th, it's empty again, right? So that's that trying to do it all at once. But if you gradually, step by step, think, okay, this month, you know, you can always start with um, the first of the month or the full moon or the new moon. Yesterday was a new moon. It's always a good time to set new intentions, right? So one of the things I recommend is each month, at the beginning of the month, set an intention for that month that you can achieve. You know, it could be that 
if you're chanting 16 rounds, but you're just working on, you know, getting that number done, then maybe it's for the month of September, you can focus on, you know, chanting one or two rounds in which you're 100% focused on the mantra and chanting. And then the rest of them, you know, could be like that or it could be how you normally do it. I know when I started, and I shared this a couple weeks ago, that when I was working, you know, it was hard to always get up in the morning and chant all my rounds before work. Um, so I had made a pact with myself that at least I would chant four rounds in the morning, no disturbance, you know, no distractions, four rounds in the morning. And if I got eight done, great. If I got 16 done, even better, right? But the minimum was four. And that, like, my mind could wrap around that. So that's like 30 minutes, right? So my mind could wrap around that, and that became easier to do. And in doing that, it became easier to, you know, wake up even earlier and earlier and to chant my 16 rounds. Um, another, again, coming back to the body, I remember, you know, I was working a lot of hours, and I didn't have time for exercising, and I could feel it in my body. So I decided that I was going to start exercising. In the past... What I would do is, like, I'd decide to start exercising and go run three miles. And then my body would be hurting, and I was like, oh, this is, you know, like, the next day I'd be like, oh, I don't have that kind of energy. I can't do it. So what I decided is I was going to walk 15 minutes after work. It wasn't much, one five minutes, right? And I didn't put any kind of, like, pressure on it. I would go in my work clothes. I would just change my shoes to, like, tennis shoes. And, like, immediately when I walked in the house, I would change my shoes, <clears throat> set my timer, and walk for seven and a half minutes, and then walk back for seven and a half minutes. And I did that, like, that was my goal for the month, right? I did that every day for 30 days. And then I was like, oh, I'm this much away from a mile, so let me go ahead and, like, push it an extra five minutes and get a mile walked, right? And then it was like, you know, gradually, I was like, okay, well, let me get two miles, and then three miles. And it... Because it was such a gradual thing, it became easier to carve out that time for it. And it was the same thing with my japa. So when we talk about, you know, the nine processes of devotional service, hearing, chanting, remembering, serving, worshiping Krishna, um, surrendering everything to Krishna, it's a gradual process. And we want to take it step by step, but we also want to make sure that each step is infused with love and it's not mechanical. So we're not chanting our japa in this mechanical way to get it done um, to some extent, right? We just talked about only setting a goal of however many you can do. So let's say you chant four. Your goal is to chant four rounds before work in that undisturbed, um, non-distracted way. Then... You want to do those four rounds as lovingly as possible, as much out of, you know, pushing yourself past what you feel is comfortable as much as possible. And then the rest of the 12, you can do however you want to do it. Sometimes when you do that, you feel inspired to keep going. Um, but it's still important to make sure that you have this pact with yourself, that you're not going to force yourself or push yourself to do more than what you're capable of that moment. So it's the other thing about when you set a goal is you want to set a goal that's going to be 
easy enough for your mind to wrap around, but a little bit difficult that's challenging that it excites you. Because if something is too easy, it also doesn't really motivate you to to push yourself to do anything about it. You might just think, oh, it's too easy. I don't need to do that. So it's this balance that we want to have. So I'll stop here and ask if there are any questions.